Mary Jones in, I better get the right year, 1792 was eight years old and she lived in uh, very remote villages of Wales up in the hill country. Uh, The people were illiterate, they were poor, her mum and dad were weavers. She was an only child. Uh, She couldn't read, there were no schools. But every Monday night they'd walk in the dark by lamp light and they'd go down to the district, what they called Mission Hall and they'd listen to someone read the Bible and they'd sing some hymns and they'd pray some prayers and then they'd walk all the way home again in the dark. And Aunt Mary, at the age of eight, she used to love these meetings. She had a real hunger for God. She had a real passion about the Bible. She was intrigued and even at the age of eight, she could learn passages of scripture just because she heard them read. She'd learn them off by heart. When they get home again, they'd retell the stories to each other so they wouldn't forget them. But they didn't own a Bible. In fact, hardly anyone owned a Bible because they were too expensive and, um, and they were really scarce, okay, back in these days in Wales. Um, but there was a minister in a town about 25 miles away in a town called Bala. And he had a real heart, first of all, to get schools started in all the villages. And, um, and in Mary's particular district, uh, you know, they, all the people in the village worked really hard all week. And when Sunday came around, it was their day off, so they partied hard. So gambling and, and drunkenness were a real problem. And this guy was really worried about all the young boys because they had no schooling, no discipline in their life. And, you know, it was pretty pretty big rabble up in the hills. So anyway... While Mary was praying that she could get a Bible and that she could learn to read, this guy's 25 miles away going, how can we get a school started up there? How can we get a teacher there? Anyway, by the time that she was 10, a school opened up and a Sunday school also opened up and she'd had a neighbour of hers who was one of the rare people in the place that owned a Bible had promised her, they said, Mary, if you learn to read, you can come to our place and read our Bible. So she was a girl on a mission. And um, anyway, so off she went to school. She learnt to read. Every Saturday she would walk a couple of miles barefoot over the hills to the neighbour's house and she'd spend the day there reading the Bible and she'd learn more passages off by heart. What an amazing little girl. Um, And then she went, oh, I'm sick of having to walk a whole hour just to read the Bible. I'm going to save up for my own Bible. And she set about after two years of doing all these odd jobs on top of all the farm work she had to do, she'd saved up two shillings and seven pence. And then her dad got really sick. And any extra money that she earned had to go to actually put um, food on the table. And he was sick for two years. So finally, after six years, she'd saved up enough to buy a Welsh Bible, which meant she had to walk 25 kilometres barefoot through the Welsh uh, mountains down to that, that town called Bala to just purchase a Bible. It took her a whole day. She even had to borrow a purse to put the money in and a bag to carry some food in for the day. That's how poor they were. Anyway, she got to Bala, woke up the next morning only to discover there were no Bibles for sale. Well, she burst into tears as any girl would. You know, all that sacrifice, all those hours of work, all that walking, all the waiting, all the longing, only to be told there's not a Bible to be bought and no more are being printed in Wales at the moment. Well, she was broken hearted. But the poor minister took mercy on her and went, well, there's three Bibles um, that somebody's coming to collect and I'm going to give you one of them. 
Okay, so she scored her Bible, walked the 25 kilometres all the way home. Her family was so excited, they celebrated all night and they opened up their brand new Bible, their very own Bible, and they read Psalm 150 together. And that was how Mary got her Bible. But the minister was so grieved and so stirred about the plight. Here's these people, they are desperate for the word of God, but there's no Bibles available. He made a trip to London and he went to a printer's association and he told the story of Mary Jones. And the people there were so moved that the Bible Society, which back then was known as the British and Foreign Bible Society, got formed. And not only did they want to get Bibles printed in Welsh, I think it is, okay, for all the people in Wales, but their vision just stirred in them and they said, we want to put Bibles in every nation, in every language, for every person. And that's how, out of this little girl's testimony, that massive big society um, was born and has been running even to this day. You know, William Wilberforce was alive at the time. He sowed money into the Bible Society. And you know, the radical thing, those first Welsh Bibles, the most amount of money raised was from the poor mountain people, the village people in Wales raised the money to make those Bibles get printed. Um, Every Sunday school by um, 1806, in Wales had received a Bible and Mary Jones was there the day when the Bibles were delivered to her Sunday school. So it was pretty amazing, very amazing story. I know, at, I think I was about 10 or 11 when I read that story, I was like convicted to the court, <laughs> okay? It just like, and it sat there ever since in my life. When the society was born, already the Bible had been translated into 72 languages, but there was so much more work to be done. Last time I spoke with you, um, I did a message called Mirror, Mirror and we were looking about the verse in James about when you look in the mirror and then you walk away and you forget what you see. We are talking about being doers of the word, not just hearers. And we, we introduced the, um, the SOAP devotional strategy, okay? And Ken and Ros put these brilliant exercise books together as a gift for anyone who was challenged and ready to get stuck into the word of God. We are continuing. This is part two, okay? This is part two and it's called It Is Written. And you know, (laughs) the Holy Spirit has been um, just working on me over the years about the fact that there is the power or this power in us writing down the scriptures. There's something amazing that God wants us to capture about writing out the word of God, okay? The word scriptures actually in in the original Greek, is the writings, okay? So our scriptures are written. The Bible's written. You know, the Bible originally was um, logs and diaries and songs. Um, It was commandments, there's statutes, there's laws, there's prophetic words, visions. Everything was written down. It was written down on scrolls. It was written down on tablets. It was passed on. It was read generation after generation. Even the Ten Commandments, the Bible tells us, were written by the finger of God. Okay, there's something powerful in the fact that the Bible is written. Habakkuk was instructed. We've got that verse on the screen. It says, write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets so that the herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits a point of time. Okay, there's something about when you write it down, something begins to run. Okay, there's something powerful in writing down the word of God. 
You know, God has given us, I've got my miniature Bible here, the one I can't read anymore because I need glasses. God has given us the Bible. It is one book, but it's also 66 books. Okay, it's a single volume, but it's a library. That's so God. Don't you reckon? Three in one. He's just so amazing. But what I want to do is just lay a little ground work for us today. I want to tell you how we actually can hold these in our hands today. Okay, I'm going to just run you down the history of how we got the English Bible in our hands because I want to inspire you at how incredibly precious God's Word is and how we do not take it lightly and we need to open it and read it and activate it in our life and we need to write it down. So are you with me? Okay, back in the 6th century, Christianity hit England. But the masses, who were poor and illiterate, couldn't access the Bible. It was in Latin, okay, it was really expensive. And, um, and so that just pushed them out, okay, they couldn't access it. If you had the desire to study the Word of God, first of all, you had to be a bloke, okay, sorry girls, we're out of the picture here. You had to become a monk and enrol or enlist or give up your life and go live in a monastery. And then you had to train as a scribe and you would spend your days writing by hand the word of God. We've got a picture of one of those. Thanks, Warren. This book here, you've heard of illuminated manuscripts. Okay, this one here is called the Lindenspun Gospel and it was written in a monastery in north of England that had been kicked off by... Um, Irish missionaries, all right? So we're going way back in history. And the monks actually just used to spend like an amazing amount of time making these beautiful manuscripts. Now, paper, for some reason, I didn't quite find out the reason, paper didn't exist in these days because there'd been a ban on papyrus, okay? So the only way that books could be made was with vellum, okay? And for those of you who don't know what that is, okay, it's the skin of either sheep, goats or calves. And it was fantastic for books because it was white, it was smooth, it was tough and it lasted a really, really long time. And so they used to make books out of skin, okay? And you know, <laughs> this manuscript here and many others like it, it took somewhere between, let me get the right number so I'm not misquoted, 210 and 225 sheep to produce a Bible. Isn't that amazing? It's like, talk about um, a blood-bought book, I tell you. My goodness. Um, anyway, sadly, in 875, the Danes came and they destroyed the monastery where this book was from. The monks ran, but because these things take a lot of time, they took their Bible with them. They ended up on a journey on a boat going back to Ireland and a huge storm almost shipwrecked the boat. The Bible ended up in the water and they thought all their hard work had been lost. But because it was made out of vellum, it washed up at low tide and they got it back. It sits in the British Museum today. You can go and visit it if you go to England. So that's amazing. Then, in 1066, there was the Battle of Hastings and manuscript writing came to an end. So all of a sudden, these amazing books got stopped. We go all the way to the 14th century now and we discover a man that many of you know, 
his name's John Whitecliffe or, or Whitcliffe, okay? And he believed that every single person needed to access the Word of God. And he believed that every English person needed to have a Bible in what was called Middle English or the common language of the day. Okay, up till then, in church, all you heard was Latin. No one understood it, okay? And um, it was actually against the law in those days for anyone who wasn't like a registered clerical person to read the Bible. It was against the law. Okay, John Wycliffe was tried for heresy and he died 18 months later. But because he was brave enough to go against the laws of the time, two whole Bibles have been handwritten out in English of the day. Two. Two of them, handwritten. Then we get William Tyndale. And William Tyndale, as as well as um, Wycliffe, had been university trained, Cambridge and Oxford. They were really smart guys. And the thing that um, was radical was the printing press got invented. And there was also a Greek um, New Testament. So he set about translating the Bible. And Tyndale dreamed, this is his dream, that ploughboys would be able to know more scriptures than the average priest in England. And so he had to leave England because he was persecuted for translating the Bible. And um, as um, printed versions of his New Testament came about, they got smuggled back into England. As fast as they hit England, they got gathered up and they got burnt. And so it was this battle going on continually. The amazing thing is they had to buy all those Bibles to burn them. And so the money that came from the burnt Bibles actually furnished the Old Testament being translated. So God always gets the upper hand. But anyway, poor old Tyndale, before he could complete the whole translation of the Bible, he got to 90%. He was betrayed, he got imprisoned, he was tried for heresy, he was convicted, and then he was strangled on a stake and burnt. Okay, and there's a, um, like a newspaper drawing of the day of what happened to Tyndale. His dying prayer was, God, open the eyes of the King of England. His contemporary, Martin Luther, managed to get a Bible in German. But if you wanted to uh, buy one of Luther's Bibles, it would cost you five calves. So that was very expensive. But praise God, through that, the Reformation was ushered in. And there was this incredible awakening that came about where people wanted to read the Bible in the original languages. And there was an incredible stirring that the Bible is for every person and that every person should be able to access the word of God. And so out of that, they recognised that that was extremely and supremely important, that people needed to have a Bible for daily devotional use to um, foster their relationship with God. And these are the four things that motivated them. That the Bible is the means by which God speaks to his people, okay, and it reveals the redemptive message of Jesus Christ, that that had to get out to people. The other thing that they believed was that only a Bible-reading Christian could be an effective Christian. Only a Bible-reading church could be an effective church and really bring about transformation on the planet. And that the Bible was so important that it demanded the best contemporary version that people could read. And that's what was motivating them. But, you know, incredible battles went on over the Word of God. Incredible battles against translation and against getting it into the hands of everyday people. Translation required a huge amount of work. You had to learn all those languages, 
There is copious amounts of writing and drafts and revising, but all under heavy persecution, stacks of interruptions, the Inquisition, laws being changed, you name it. You know, I said that back in the Middle Ages it was against the law, okay? It was against the law to read a Bible unless you were an ordained clerical person. They'd put a Bible in a church, the next king had come in a reign, the Bibles would get taken out of the churches. They'd put them back in again under someone else's reign, they'd get taken out again. It was ridiculous. And that Queen Mary, I think she's the one they call Bloody Mary, okay? She was definitely the ones taking them out all the time. Tyndale had his work there, Coverdale came along and a guy called John, I call him Johnny because it sounds right, Johnny Rogers, <laughs> okay? He, they actually got Tyndale's work and published some Bibles. Johnny got burnt to death by Queen Mary for doing that. But uh, Coverdale managed to get the Bible over to Switzerland and in Geneva, there's a Bible that they call the Geneva Bible, um, and they actually managed to get this printed and eventually that Bible was allowed to be read in England and noblemen and gentlemen were allowed to have a Bible at home and read it on their own estate. Sorry, girls, not us again. Let me read you the law of the day. It says, um, and you guys are in this, have a listen. It says, but lest things should get out of hand, it was enacted that after the 1st of July, no woman... Artificers, apprentices, serving men, yeomen or labourers shall read within this realm or any other of the king's dominions the Bible in English to himself or to any other, privately or openly, upon pain of one month's imprisonment for every offence. You know, that Bible was read for three generations. Shakespeare was one of the people that was alive then. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. And over in America, the Civil War soldiers, that was the Bible they had. And for nearly 300 years, that was the Bible that people listened to every Sunday and actually began to have in their home. Originally, it was called the Authorised Version under King Henry VIII, but then King James was the one who said, yep, everyone can have a Bible. And so that's how we got our King James Version. And King James, um, that Bible is 90% of what... Tyndale died for. It's amazing. Okay, so everyone who's still got the King James Bible in their possession, it's a blood-bought Bible, I tell you. And you know, everyone who lived on remote farms, just like Mary Jones, that was the only book most people ever had in their home. It was about the only book anyone had in the district. And you know, it was about the only thing people studied. My, what a different world. What a different world we live in. You know, I can testify that in my own devotional life with God, the heights have been when I'm disciplined and I have time alone with God, when I actually get down and I feed on his word and I let his spirit speak to me, but more than that, when I begin to write what God is saying, when I get a pen out and I begin to write down what God is saying to me through his word, I am astounded at what he does in my life. And, um, and that's why we pushed this last time. Quite a few years ago, um, I heard Mark Edwards share about just the whole approach um, for a devotional thing. And it really stirred me because it was about writing down the Word of God, writing down what God speaks to you about the Word of God. 
And I can tell you it's life-changing. Mark did a survey, he's from Ipswich, he did a survey in his town of 40 ministers and only two, only two were having devotion with God on a daily basis. Okay? You know, I've heard it said, and I know it's true of my own life, is that most of the time Christians need revival most of the time. Okay? And so I know if, if this Bible cost all that blood to get this into our hands, the devil's going to do his darndest to put us to sleep and us not, not read it. Okay? So I know even if all of you are brilliant and you're reading your Bible every day, I know I need to hear this today. Have I got any others with me? Okay, and if you are fantastic at doing your daily devotion with God and you get great stuff out of it, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to encourage you today to go bigger more. Okay, God wants to go further. He wants to reveal himself more. Um, Robert Ferguson says this. He says, I see a generation that excels in public passion but fails in private devotion. Psalm 119.36 says, My eyes pour out streams of tears because your people do not follow your instruction. When I read that in my daily soap reading, okay, I really felt like that verse was the cry of the Holy Spirit and I felt like it was his cry in my life. Um, this isn't about legalism. okay? We're not saying you have to do this. This is about a God who is longing that we get to know him and that we get empowered by him i tell you what the bible is not a textbook it's about jesus okay we don't read it legalistically we read it relationally the creator of the universe wants to speak to us he wants to talk to us he wants to have a relationship with us um to write down what he says to write down what he's saying in our heart is an honor it's an incredible and it's life-changing. You know, last year I did a message about us being in the a kingdom of bridges, a kingdom of priests, okay? We're kings and we're priests. And we're designed by God to rule and reign, okay? We, we, we don't have to live under a black cloud like people who don't know Jesus. We can rule over the sin in our flesh. We can reign over temptation. We can make wise choices. We can have authority, we can speak with authority. We can have authority over circumstances. We don't have to be intimidating. God wants us to live authentic and successful lives, okay? Because we know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 119.45, it says this. It says, I will walk freely in an open place because I seek your precepts. I love that. This is freedom. We can hold our head up high. We can walk no matter what the storms, no matter what garbage comes our way, we can actually walk as if we're in open spaces because the word of God is living and true inside our life. How brilliant is that? Because we are kings. We rule and we reign according to what God's done in our life. But you know, the Bible's full of kings who have failed or succeeded and it's written there and recorded there for us to learn lessons from. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says that these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. Now, last year, um, Neville and I and Sharon, we were at the state conference down in Port Macquarie for our movement of churches. 
And Robert Ferguson um, just did a clincher of a message. And Rob, um, Sharon and Warren have got the DVDs here. They're going to go in our library. If you want to um, listen to Robert's message, I really encourage you. It's called The King's Journal. But his message just like hit home to me. And um, this, it's been sitting in here ever since. And so today I just want to share some of the principles that he shared, but some other ones that God's given me on top of that about what God says to kings about writing down his word. Okay, are you with me? Do you feel like you're king? Okay, you're going to be wise enough to listen to a king's advice. Okay, so this is amazing because it's a connection between writing in your daily devotions and ruling. Okay, writing and ruling. So here we go. Deuteronomy 17 says this. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and have settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all other nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Don't place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back the way, that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray and he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So that part of the passage talks about three temptations that are going to take us out. Okay, If we're going to come into this God-designed ruling and reigning, there's three temptations we've got to watch out for. First one is the corruption of power. The second one is the deception of relationships. And the third one is the accumulation of wealth. And King Solomon blew it on every account. Okay, these are the same temptations that Jesus was challenged with in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Okay, Jesus received faith from what Moses had written down, okay, in Deuteronomy 6 and 8. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, it is written, okay? It is written. There is something incredible about the written word of God. Jesus says, it is written. Paul takes up the three same temptations in 2 Timothy 3. He says, in the last days there will be lovers of money, lovers of pleasure and lovers of themselves. Okay, so the first one, the corruption of power, that's because horses in those days represented all the power, you know, armies coming and horses and all that. So watch out for the corruption of power. There's that old saying, it says, power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. Okay, we are incredibly vulnerable to this. All of us are incredibly vulnerable because we get trapped into attitudes about you know, our position or, you know, are we mentioned, are we noticed, you know, all that sort of stuff. It brings us down, the pride factor. Okay, we've got to be careful that that stuff doesn't take root in our life. Whatever we're involved in, we hold on to that stuff lightly and we recognise that everything is God's doing in our life. Okay, we don't get ensnared by that. Watch out for flattery, watch out for comparisons, watch out for titles. The deception of relationships, this one is huge, okay? We get pulled off track by making wrong relationships. We allow the wrong kind of people to influence us, people with uh, small minds or people with wrong behaviours and wrong thinking. 
or even people who don't have a devotional life, but they're speaking into our life. You know, Neville and I were in Queensland recently and walking through one of those humongous shopping centres and it just blows me away. Every time you go somewhere like that, you bump into someone you know. <laughs> anyway, I bumped into this young guy who I used to teach down at the Christian school at Bonville there at Coffs Harbour and uh, he's married now, married a beautiful girl and um, he told us a sad story about his wife's parents. They, were, um, they headed up the whole worship team in a prominent church in Coffs Harbour um, they went off to university to further their music training and they're now atheists. And I just went, dear God, how does that happen? How can you be passionate about worship and become an atheist? But I think this is it, the deception of relationship. They chose to hang around wrong thinking people. I presume that their devotional life became weak. <coughs> the statistics are frightening, aren't they? The accumulation of wealth. There's absolutely nothing wrong with money. There is nothing wrong with things. But there's a danger in the accumulation for our own selfish desires. It's highly dangerous. Stuff lures us. It really does. And it's a continual battle. Psalm 119, 36 to 37 says, Turn your head to, to your decrees and not to material gain. Turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless and give me life in your ways. Okay, there's another verse in that Deuteronomy reading, and this is what the wisdom that was given to the kings to put into place so that those three great temptations that are common to every single one of us don't bring us down. It says this in Deuteronomy 17, 18. It says, When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law. Taken from that of a priest, of a Levite, <coughs> it is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the right or the left and then he and his descendants will reign a long time over this kingdom in Israel. Some amazing stuff in that one little verse. I'm just going to share with you some brief principles of what we can do in our life so that we do not succumb to the three temptations that so commonly take people out. The first one is recording. If you're taking notes, you can record this one down. So number one's recording. He is to write for himself on a scroll. God has said, King, if you're going to rule and reign, you've got to start writing out the word of God. So you take up a pen, it's going to help you remember. The second one is responsibility. It says, for himself. Okay, we're writing the word of God for ourselves. We're taking responsibility for our lives. We are writing it for ourselves. The king was required, firstly, to record it for himself because God wanted to speak to him. God wanted to give him wisdom and understanding. God wanted to help him know right from wrong. God wanted him to help him rule justly, okay, for himself. Number three, it was revelation. <coughs> right for himself on a scroll, a copy of this law. God wants to reveal himself to us. The word revelation means unveiling, okay. Jesus wants us to get to know him. That's why we're reading the word, okay. It's not a textbook, 
It's about finding Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus more. It's about going to a deeper and a higher level than what we've ever experienced before. There is so much more. There is so much more. And God is busting for us to come into that. Number four, it's relationship, okay? It says in that verse, it says, it is to be with him. Okay, the king had to take that copy that he'd written out with him everywhere he went, every day of his life. It represented that God was with him, that the word was with him, and he could not rule without it. He needed both the written word and the relationship to rule, to rule, to not succumb to those temptations. Okay, it was a refuge taken from that of a priest. We're called to be priests. Because we're priests, okay, we are invited to come away with God to his holy place, to a quiet place. My goodness, that is hard to find in the world we live in. It is really hard. I find that an incredible struggle to find a place where I'm not getting interrupted and not getting taken away. Okay, the old-fashioned term was a quiet time. It needs to be quiet so we can hear God's voice. Um, a couple of weeks ago in my soap journal, I wrote this scripture out, um, pounding on my heart's door, and it says in Psalm 132, 3-5, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not allow my eyes to sleep or my eyelids to slumber until I find a place for my Lord, a refuge, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And then I went on to write and write down, and I said, Lord, I desire to prioritise focused attention, relationship with you, first thoughts, not neglecting prayer or word or worship life, heartbeat, oxygen, spirit exercise, alive, attuned, inclined, soft, available, not distracted, alert, hearing, watching, in tune, dwelling. Help me make dwelling with you before the concerns of my house and my daily living, my comfort, my personal needs, my precious sleep. Help me find a place for you first before me and mine. I'm so easily busy, so full up, so distracted. It's got to be you first, your place first. Amen. We can all find excuses, but what we've got to do is find a place. So don't make excuses, make a place. Okay, number six, reading. Read it all the days of your life so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. Daily, daily, regularly, a healthy habit. Number seven, rulership. Um, and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the right or the left and then he and his descendants will reign a long time on the earth. You know, in the book of Acts, the Bereans read the Bible every day. It says that they read the scriptures daily. And, you know, they were described as a people with noble character. They were kings. Number eight, reproduce. And his descendants will reign a long time over this kingdom in Israel. And I tell you what, not only are we writing out the scriptures, not only are we putting down pen to paper about what the Holy Spirit is speaking into our life when we're reading the Word of God. It's not just for us. It's for the generations to come. And I tell you what, I am totally motivated about this for Haley and for Haley's kids. I want her to have her feet solid 
on the rock. I want her to have a healthy devotional life in God. And as I write, I'm writing history. I'm writing her history, okay? I am writing on behalf of her generation. And I tell you what, for all of us who work, walk alongside a new Christian, someone we're discipling, we want to make sure our written devotional life is happening so that we can minister out of a fresh relationship with Jesus and then they then pass that on to their disciples as well. It's generational. In Psalm 132, 12, it says, If your sons keep my covenant and my decrees that I will teach them, their sons will also sit on the throne forever. What a cool promise. Okay? I'm not just doing it for me. I'm doing it for Haley. You know, the word of God is so precious. It's been bought with an incredible price. It's been placed in our hands through an incredible history of sacrifice and persecution. But I tell you what, God wants to speak to us through it. He wants us to rule and reign in life. He wants us to have an absolutely happening relationship with him so that we can affect the lives of other people. We can bring transformation to this planet. In Psalm 119, 20, it says, I am continually overcome by longing for your judgments. Okay, longing for your word. And like I read that and go, oh God, I feel really convicted. I so want to be longing, you know, so thirsty and hungry for the word of God that I don't dare put off finding that quality time. You know, not just a little reading here and there, but quality time where God can actually speak into my life. So I'm challenged and I pray that you're challenged that it's writing time, okay? Get your pen out. Ken and Roz have, like the, I love Ken and Roz, they're so generous. They have put together another bundle of these books, okay, and I don't want them wasted. If you want one, if you have never written down the Word of God, if you might just do a reading but you don't write, I challenge you, take one of these today and let God begin to transform your life in a way far beyond your imagination. Okay, we want it to be fresh and authentic. So write down the Word of God. Fall in love with Jesus all over again. Take it with you all the time. Let the Word of God live in you fresh every day, not stale bread. And remember, it's not about you. It's about the generations to come. So I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that Jesus is the word, the living word, that we can have relationship with you. We thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross to save us and to set us free. And, Lord, you, you put the physical word in our grasp. Lord, through lives that were so tortured and tormented because they were full of passion to get this living, vital word into our hands. Lord, it is humbling to think of the price paid over this book. But, Lord Jesus, I pray that, that this church, our family here, Lord, would be full of Christians who read their Bibles but not like textbooks, like devotion, like relationship, and that they write down your word. And, Father, I pray that our church would be a Bible church, a living, vital Bible church, and that, God, we would be effective to pass this on to the generations. We ask that in Jesus' precious holy name. Thank you, Lord. I just want to give opportunity for anyone here today who hasn't actually ever asked 
Jesus to be the Lord and Saviour of your life, that there's no time like now. And um, Jesus died on the cross to take our sin away. We can um, have strength in his word, okay, to stop us from blowing it in life. But God's grace is always there. He's always there. And just like John said earlier, before he knew the Lord, he wished he could live his life over. Okay, he wished he could do things. We all feel like that. We wish we could do things so much better. That's where Jesus comes into play because he actually wipes the slate clean and we start again. So if that's you, um, we're just going to get everyone to bow their heads again and we're going to pray. And if you want to raise your hand and acknowledge that that's what you'd love to do today, then I'll be really happy to come and pray with you and talk with you and get some great friends of mine here sharing with you. So if we just bow our, our heads for a few moments and if there's anyone there who would like to come into a new relationship with God. Okay, well, my prayer is that we all come into a fresh relationship today. In Jesus' name, amen.